Good day and welcome. Let's get back into the book of Acts. I'm Warren Berkeley with the Laurel Heights Church of Christ, and we are at the beginning of Acts chapter 19. We will find Apollos working in Corinth and Paul working in Ephesus. We are taking one chapter a class. These video classes are brought to you by the Laurel Heights Church of Christ, McAllen, Texas. Our website is lhmacallen.org. Acts chapter 19, four fast facts. We are in the third missionary journey. The third missionary journey. We were recently introduced to an eloquent man who is now, at this point in Luke's narrative, a faithful, devoted Christian, Apollos, who worked in Corinth. Paul continues his journey now over to Ephesus. In chapter 19, we will come to the account of the riot in Ephesus, very similar to what we discovered in Thessalonica. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn, and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks." So when Paul arrived in Ephesus, he found people who, like Apollos in the previous chapter, had not been fully informed about the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and the end of John's baptism. They had been baptized according to John's baptism, John the Baptist who was the forerunner. Paul explains to them the change that took place with Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 5 is the key verse here. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul imparted to some of these disciples the ability to speak in foreign languages and prophesy. Three more months, Paul was there, and it says that he taught them about the kingdom of God. Opposition caused him to change locations, but Paul never changed his message. 
reasoning daily, it says, in the lecture hall, the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Continuing, verses 11 through 20, Acts 19. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Pause for a moment and observe how God was the cause of the miracles performed by Paul. It says, by or through the hands of Paul. The source is God. God is confirming the message being delivered by Paul through these miracles. The purpose was not to compete with sideshows, to bring in contributions, to outdo local sorcerers, but to establish without doubt that Paul was a messenger of God, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, authentically acting as such. Also note, there were others who attempted miraculous feats, but failed. It became known, for example, that the seven sons of Sceva had failed to cast out demons. See, magicians and charlatans, sorcerers, were present all through this culture, offering various cures and blessings by their spells and their incantations, very often for financial consideration. The more exotic the incantation, the more effective it was deemed to be in that culture. Paul's miracles and the failure of the sons of Sceva became powerful testimony. So much so, people in Ephesus brought their books of magical arts from their previous religion and burned them. And so, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
In Reese's commentary, he makes this observation. The residents of Ephesus learned that the name of the Lord stood on a very different level from the names of the exorcist likely to employ in their charms. Magnified is an imperfect tense verb and suggests a continuous growth of profound respect for the name of the Lord. We're continuing in Acts 19 at verse 21, reading to the end of the chapter. Acts 19, 21 through 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. 
for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. That's Acts 19, 21 through 41. At this point in the narrative, Paul becomes very passionate about his intention to go to Jerusalem and then after that to Rome. Uh, he hadn't forgotten the needs of the Christians in Macedonia, sending two men there, Timothy and Erastus, but Paul stayed in Asia, having on his mind his intention to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. Uh, about this time, Luke tells about a disturbance concerning the Lord's work in the city. In this passage, is called the way. One of the leading businesses in Ephesus was making shrines for the use of the pagans. When Paul, in teaching the word of God, taught against idolatry, this had some impact on the business of making and selling idols. A preacher, friend of mine from Louisville, once wrote, it would be equivalent to someone's standing at the entrance of Churchill Downs in my hometown during Derby Week and preaching against horse racing. The gospel is always at its most controversial when it comes in conflict with economic interest. So, this riot was stirred up by Demetrius. Paul's companions were taken into a crowd, and Paul wanted to go. The brethren restrained him for the sake of his safety. A prominent Jew could not restrain the crowd. Finally, the town clerk quieted the crowd, making an appeal that nothing be done rash or violent. The clerk said, the courts are open. There can be charges brought and tested in the proper way. Verse 40, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So that's Acts chapter 19. Mention is made here of great Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis was the principal deity of this huge metropolitan area, Ephesus, and popular throughout the Mediterranean world. She was worshipped more widely than any other imaginary deity in that region, some say. The ancient Ephesian pagans believed that Artemis was the god of fertility and reproductive power. That myth was attractive for carnal purposes, but also for purposes of advancing your race are building a bigger family. The Grand Temple of Artemis in Ephesus is lauded as one of the seven great wonders 
of the world. And many shops and businesses were associated with this form of pagan idolatry. The gospel hit the core of all that, and thus the uproar, the riot in Ephesus. Observation from uh, one of the commentaries I have by Kaufman, the great Ephesian temple of Artemis, loosely identified with Diana, was ranked by ancient writers as one of the seven wonders of the world, its importance deriving not merely from its architectural beauty and size, but from the status which the temple management enjoyed as banker of the whole world. It has been said that the temple of Diana was the equivalent in ancient pagan society to the Bank of England in modern times. The principal industry of Ephesus was that of manufacturing and selling these images. Here's another observation I found about the town clerk, one of my commentaries. One has to admire the intelligence, tact, and ability by which the town clerk achieved a dispersal of such a mob. First, he pointed out that the whole city might be in danger for tolerating such an illegal uproar. But then he softened his reference to the riot by calling it a concourse in some translations. This indicated that he was willing to convey some semblance of legality to the mob by naming it a concourse instead of a riot. Then, moving still further to legalize the outrageous gathering, he dismissed the assembly. In context, that town clerk's actions bore the stamp of genius. Once more, the providence of God had preserved the life of the dauntless apostle, saving him and protecting him without his so much as opening his mouth. How wonderful are the ways of the Lord. Takeaway time. Verse 3, look at that statement, into what then were you baptized? Still a good question. I sometimes get into conversations with people about baptism, and folks will often say, well, I've been baptized. Perhaps they were baptized as an infant or baptized in some denominational ceremony as a sign after they said they were born again. So this is a legitimate question today. Into what then were you baptized? Into a denomination? We need to help people put their baptism alongside what the New Testament says and draw a conclusion about it and act upon what the New Testament says. So this question does have value today. To be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ means you are following the instructions of the New Testament to get out of sin and put yourself under the authority of Christ, a choice made possible by the grace of God through the death of Jesus Christ. I sometimes use a brief pointed quiz for people. Does the book of Acts tell us how to become a Catholic, a Lutheran, a Baptist, a Seventh-day Adventist, a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, a Methodist, or a Christian? 
So this is a good question. Into what then were you baptized? When people responded to the gospel, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, and they became Christians. Let's talk about being sincere. And I want to include in this Apollos and the Ephesian disciples of John. When Aquila and Priscilla first met Apollos, we studied about that recently, when they first met Apollos, who knew only the baptism of John, they didn't say, well, he is just, he's just crazy. He isn't sincere. Let's just say nothing and go on. They took him aside, and he proved to be sincere when he was better informed. Likewise, when Paul came to Ephesus and found some who were disciples of John and didn't know really fully about Pentecost, while it is true they were sincere, Paul didn't leave them in ignorance. See, sincerity is a valuable trait of character, but one sincere heart needs to be informed and guided by the Word of God. Many people we meet who say they are religious are sincere, but they are often sincerely wrong. And we ought to find good opportunities to further inform them with the Word of God. If folks are really sincere, they will listen to the Word of God and act upon it so that their sincerity is directed and grounded in God's Word. In the text we've studied this time, there is a powerful example of repentance in verses 18 through 20. And sometimes this is referred to as a pagan librarian's nightmare. I read this the other day. 50,000 pieces of silver roughly translated or transferred into modern terms would be the equivalent of 50,000 days wages. One man, Brother Jason Harden, said, Another way of looking at this is that it would require over 150 people working a full year to equal the value of these pagan scrolls. This was no little matter. I had someone do the math for me. The result is, based on $45,000 a year, about three quarters of a million dollars. These people were ready to leave their former religion. They were sincere. When the gospel informed their sincerity, they acted. That's quite impressive. It illustrates a commitment that includes renouncing everything that is wrong. Sometimes people want to sort of slip away from their former religion gradually and just kind of slip into something better, not these new Christians. Publicly, they burned their pagan scrolls and confessed and divulged their wrong practices. That's how the gospel can work in the hearts of good and sincere people who really want to change and become a part of what God is offering in Christ. I believe it's valuable to notice how Luke describes the activity of Christians following Christ in verse 23, the way. Doesn't that sound singular, exclusive? 
It may remind us of the words of Jesus, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, we know this kind of talk doesn't square with modern thinking. Modern thinking envisions multiple ways to God. Many churches, the more and the more different they are, the better. That's the religiously correct way to think today. Luke, Jesus, and the apostles spoke exclusively of one way. Then I want to say the gospel must be preached, even against the pressure of persecution due to economic disadvantage. H. Leo Bowles, in his commentary on Acts, said, Demetrius' arguments can be summed up in two points. Their trade would be injured and their religion would be in danger. The challenge for us today is to preach the gospel and keep preaching the gospel even when it threatens someone's economic standing or religion. Back in 1933, after prohibition ended, especially in liquor-producing states like Kentucky, gospel preachers and churches teaching from the Bible the Word of God about alcohol and intoxication came into very direct conflict with a huge industry. That illustrates what Luke describes. Sometimes in preaching the gospel, we come into conflict with thriving economic gain. And those who profit oppose us. We need to be ready for that and have full conviction that no matter what, the gospel must be preached. If it means certain economic interests are under threat, that should not give us any hesitation. Acts chapter 19. Thank you for being with us next time, January 20, Acts 20. I hate to bring up something that sounds like 2020, but that's where we are on January the 20th. We will study Acts chapter 20. We hope you'll tune in and be with us again. Thank you.